This audio program may contain descriptions of violence and topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Please listen with caution. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. I do this week because last week I'm editing last week's episode right now and you went first with Sylvia Likens. <laughs> you asked me as if it was a question that you could say anything. If and you, I would well, be like, you could yes. correct me. Remember, I messed up once and you were like, no, right. that's not right. See, you caught me. Yeah, but I only knew that after the fact because I was listening to yeah. episodes. Yeah, I don't listen to them. That's my issue. Well, because I don't listen to them when we record. So I just I just listen because yeah. I'm curious like to how you cut it and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like what commercials play and stuff like that. Yeah. I like for the first time in a while the other day I listened and I was like, huh, is that progressive? Yeah. There's like, like, yeah, there's auto insurance. Yeah. It was like crazy. I didn't know that that was part of our thing. Um, There was one that had like a car commercial in it. Yeah. Yeah. Or not a car commercial. Sorry. It was like a place to get your car done. Oh. Yeah. Like detailed and stuff. Is it like a chain? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think it was like, one it's like a, place it's like a pet boys, but not a pet boy. You okay. know what I mean? It's like yeah, a, something else. This is how the audience knows that we in no way benefit from yeah. the ad sponsors. They don't send us free shit or nope. anything. We get nothing from pet boys. No, I've not one pet boy. <laughs> they have three. Yes. They can share one of them. God damn it. It's selfish. <laughs> I want the bald one. He's the cutest. <laughs> the bald one. Uh, well, there's the guy with the mustache and then there's one other it's like the yeah. three stooges i can't really remember all of them mm-hmm. i can only remember like two of them curly yeah mo and then the other one's bald i think oh yeah why can't i think of the yeah. other one there's curly with the red hair mm-hmm. and then there's mo the main one with the hitler mustache <laughs> yeah. and then there's the bald one yeah but we don't know his name joe i think curly. joe no wait curly mo and joe yeah curly. and joe yeah, Joe Curly and Mo. Mo I Curl. No I know I'm I'm set on Mo and Curly, but I don't know what but the not, other one we're, is. We're loosey goosey on Joe. Yeah. So Joe, Jim, yeah. James, John, some All white boy's name. Some yes, a gener- Larry? generic white name. Yeah. Yes. So we saw Lizzo last night. Yes. So good. She's amazing, and I love her. I love her too. Yeah. I want to be her. I know, right? She was wearing a cute bodysuit, too. She was wearing a really cute bodysuit. And also, I've noticed a trend that almost all of her bodysuits have nipples on them. <laughs> like, there's a prominent nip oh, on everyone. I haven't, yeah. I haven't noticed. Yeah, there was, there's one that's, like, nude colored. And it's, like, a very obviously just a rhinestone nipple. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she, like, moves around and dances. Yeah. And so she needs to be able to move. Yeah. Move her limbs, you know? You can't, can't, can't do wear that skinny jeans no. and a tank top. No, you can't do it at all. So Plus, she's, she's got to be, like, hot. All oh, this, all the know. yeah. I mean, in the club it was hot, but she's yeah. also under lights. She's and moving like, around. Yeah, there's people on singing. that stage. Yeah, she's singing. So I mean, rhinestone jumpsuit or yeah, unitard or whatever is definitely the way to go. Mm-hmm. I would say for that, I think she's making good choices. <laughs> that is the bottom I'm sure line. She'll on be that. happy to hear. Yes, <laughs> she, she gives that a shit that way. Yeah. yeah. But she did. I like that she went out of her way to wear the Marc Jacobs coat she wore to the Met Gala. Yeah, I missed that just part. For, just for one song. And then she's like, fuck this. Yeah, like, it was fucking it hot. I yeah. Bet. 
It was it was hot. But I like that she had it, that she got to keep it yeah. or whatever. Or she hasn't had to give it back yet, yeah. but we'll see. They'll get it cleaned first. I mean, she had a much better look than a lot of people who went, so. So, today, we're talking about spouses who kill their spouses. Okay? Yeah, not just other people. No, they just... Because then it doesn't matter if they're a spouse or not. They stick it in in the wrong way. Well, that's only if it's a knife. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that, that was a specific. convoluted um, yeah. <laughs> analogy. I don't know what that was. I don't... You didn't <laughs> use like or as, so it wasn't... No, a... it wasn't. No, never mind. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I shall start us off. Okay. And I'm going to tell start, you... <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I'm just gonna she's launch just gonna right give us into the detail. It. She's gonna give us the basic five facts, and yep. then it's my turn. And then we're we're past it. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> Not important anymore. So I'm going to tell you about the. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, I'm going to tell you about first the murderer, the spouse who murders, and his name is Dr. Buck Ruxton. Sorry, can we just talk about how weird the word spouse is? Yeah, it's a weird, weird it's like sponge. Yeah. And mouse. Or blouse. Yes. (laughs) Oh, a sponge, a mouse made of sponge wearing a blouse? Is that what it is? No, that's what it sounds like. I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah, because you can't just say like... People who murder their wives. Right. It's usually it the be, wife. But well, it could be either. So I think yours is not. the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> but mine is. So Dr. Buck Ruxton was born on March 21st, 1899. Sorry. What's that bear called? What bear? The Ruxton. Isn't that oh, bear called the yeah, Rux? Yeah, um, it's the... Uh, Ruxby? No. Run, mm, Ruxington? Teddy Ruxpin. Teddy Ruxpin. Ruxpin. That's what it reminds me of. Yes. Yeah. Also a weird name, but we'll talk yeah. about that later. But <laughs> Will we? We will. The teddy bear. Um, <laughs> not the teddy bear. The <laughs> dude's name. Um, But he was born. His birth name... He was born. His birth name... <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> he was. We know he was born. His birth name is... And I... Typed it out phonetically for okay. myself. Bukhitar Chompa Rustomji Ratonji Hakim. That was is his he... full name. He Indian? is Indian. He was born in Bombay, India. His family was a part of the wealthy Parsi class, which consisted of middle class Indian French people, mostly. As a child, Ruxton was sensitive and had few friends, but was highly intelligent and received a respectable upbringing and a thorough education. During his teenhood, Ruxton had set his sights on a career in medicine and his parents provided financial support for him to study at the University of Bombay, where he received his Bachelor in Medicine in 1922 and his Bachelor of Surgery in 1923. So he was like, I want to heal people. I also want to cut them open. So I want to do both. He's like, I'm going to do both of them. It's fine. I have great hands. So <laughs> Great for cutting. Yeah. Very steady. So Ruxton began working at a hospital in Bombay where he specialized in medicine, midwifery, and gynecology. 
So he also wanted vaginas. Yeah, so not a surgeon. No, not as a surgeon. A few years later, he accepted a job with the Indian Medical Service, and he would later be deployed to Basra and Baghdad while working there. So he was like a um, an army medic, kind of. Right, but what? I don't know this what was, was going on. This was the 1800s? 1920s. What the fuck was going I in the Middle East listen, in the 1920s? I have no idea. <laughs> I that was not the part of my of education. No, that was not in there. I don't. Yeah, I don't know where, yeah. where that war is. But there, but. or there could have just been bases, and it was like, well, someone gets Maybe, the flu yeah. on a base. We need a doctor. So in 1925, Ruxton wed a woman named Motibai Jayanjuri. This was sure. <laughs> this was an arranged marriage and ended when Ruxton relocated to England in 1926. She didn't want to go to England? No, she didn't. And he also just left without telling her. So, what a bitch. you know, we don't know if she did. Not her. Sorry. He, I was yeah, calling him the him. bitch. He concealed any evidence of his marriage and cut off communication with his wife and her family, except for one instance in 1928 when he contacted Jan Jury's father to ask for $200. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a dick. This is not the time. No. It's like, well, maybe no. Did he give it to him? I don't know. <laughs> That's a great question. Because if he did, then, I mean, mm-hmm. there's something going on there. Yeah. Bombay Medical Service and Ruxton's family supported him through his relocation to Britain. Also, he's a fucking doctor. Why does he need to borrow money? Later on, things get a little rough. Okay. He attended classes at University College Hospital in London under the name Dr. Gabriel Hakim. Gabriel came out For of nowhere. What? You're already a fucking actor. What else do <laughs> he you was need like, to learn? Well, so he's like slowly is trying to assimilate into British gotcha. culture. And I guess he thought Gabriel was a very British No, name. I mean, why is he going to class? Oh, he's a doctor. Um, so there's a difference. You know how some people have to like go back to school when yes. they immigrate to other countries? Yes. It's like that. Gotcha. Like he needs to be certified in Britain. The following year, he moved to Edinburgh in an attempt to obtain a fellowship of the Royal Colleges of Surgeons. Ruxton failed his entrance exam. Uh-oh. But the General Medical Council authorized him to practice medicine in the UK based on his qualifications. So they're like, oh, well, he was in the medical service and right. all this, so he's fine. He then changed his name to Buck Ruxton. Which Buck? Buck is, is a, a bad, bad name. name. <laughs> no matter where you live or yeah. your ethnicity. And Ruxton is Ruxton. a weird... Yeah, it's a very k-y name. Yeah. You know? Buck Ruxton. While studying for the exam, which he ultimately failed, Ruxton met a 26-year-old woman named Isabella Van S. Van S. managed a cafe and... she related to Jonathan? No. (laughs) She managed a cafe in Edinburgh and was married to a Dutchman. Van S. was his last name. This marriage, which took place in 1919, had lasted only a few weeks, and the couple was legally married but estranged. Isabella used her maiden name, Kerr, socially. So she was Isabella Kerr. The two began a flirtatious relationship, and by 1928, they were living together in England. Ooh, scandalous. Yes. He found a job as a locum to a London-based Parsi doctor, and later acted as an assistant to another doctor. In 1929, Isabella gave birth to the couple's first daughter, who they named Elizabeth. They're not even married? No. Well, they're both married to other people, legally. Oh, that's right. That's why they can't get married, because okay. they're both married but already. Isn't this the time where you can just fake your documents? It was easier to fake documents back Can't then. You just be like, no, I pinky promise I'm not married. <laughs> I, I promise I don't have eight other wives. In 1930, the little family moved from London to Lancaster, Lancashire, so that Ruxton could establish his own medical practice 
practice at his family's home, which was located at 2 Dalton Square. Ruxton was well-liked by his patients and was known to be diligent and compassionate. He would often waive his fees for patients that couldn't afford his services. Aww. In 1931, the couple welcomed a second daughter, Diane, into their family. Two years later, Isabella gave birth to their third child, a son named William. With their growing family, the couple needed help, and so in 1933, they employed a young live-in housekeeper named Mary Jane Rogerson. That was a mistake. (laughs) To help clean and care for the children. And she was like 18. Yeah, not good. (laughs) The Ruxtons also... Old and fat. Yes, you always need a very homely nanny. Someone who reminds you a lot of your mother. Yes. That's what you need. Well, the Ruxtons also employed several other servants, but very few lasted more than a few months under their employment due to low wages and poor treatment. The fuck? He's a doctor. And he's a dick, too. He knows all about vaginas, but he is a dick. So, Because he has one. Yes. To Ruxton, assimilating into British society was imperative. He took steps to dress and act like a Brit in addition to changing his name. This helped him garner... Yeah, because you know all those Brits named Buck. Buck. <laughs> you know, I was going to do a British accent, but I can't. So I'm not Hello. even going to try. Hello, Buck. My name's Buck. <laughs> Buck. It's so lovely to meet you. Buck. Ruxton. Buck Ruxton. <laughs> so it's this like hel- you could just be Benjamin. That's Benjamin is perfectly fine in British. Just like Big Ben. Yeah. So I was named after the clock that <laughs> may or may not have been made already. I'm not sure. I think it, it existed. Okay, it's good. been around for a long time. Oh, good. <laughs> so this helped him garner popularity and respect in Lancashire. However, at home and away from prying eyes of patients, Ruxton terrorized Isabella. He was constantly worried that she was seeing other men, and this paranoia manifested itself into fits of rage, hysteria, and even violence. She did marry him while she was still already married. They were both already married. (laughs) Ruxton would often become so distraught about his suspicions that he would wallow in self-pity and cry for hours. And she was probably like... (laughs) Sweetie, I'm here all the time. Yeah, she's like, okay, I I'm a never woman leave. and it's the 1900s. Yeah. I can't go anywhere. She's like, I have three kids. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. <laughs> These fights sometimes ended in Isabella packing her belongings and taking the children back to Edinburgh. Though every time this happened, Ruxton would call and plead with Isabella to come home until she did. So she would probably stay with like her parents or her right. sister. The toxic relationship between Isabella and Ruxton seemed only to escalate throughout the early 1930s. Police were called to the home to intervene on several occasions, and Isabella attempted suicide by inert gas Isabella. asphyxiation in 1932. This suicide attempt resulted in her suffering a miscarriage. Ruxton, she doesn't seem like she's very happy. She's I, can't n- imagine I don't it think would she's make happy in this relationship. You know what? I don't have to imagine. I know know. it wouldn't make a good mother. (laughs) Ruxton became belligerent and would burst into tears when police tried to talk to him about the dysfunction in the household. So he's a little bit of a crybaby. So we hear you're married. (laughs) Yeah. They were like, he was always fucking crying. Like, okay, we're just going to leave. This is uncomfortable for everyone. Yeah. So he cried whenever police tried to talk to him about the dysfunction in the household. As you do. Leading to very little progress or reconciliation between the couple. In 1933, is. Isabella told police that Ruxton had begun beating her. However, when they attempted to investigate these claims, Ruxton denied ever assaulting Isabella and told police that she had cheated on him. So I guess we'll just and believe him. And the police him. were like, well, we should trust the crying man. Yeah, he he's just known as the crying well, he man. he is crying a All lot. All the time. So maybe she did cheat? Yeah. So she probably deserves it, is what he's saying. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> 
But so I have to note this because it will come back later. But Isabella was not known to be a very attractive woman. She was described as having a lot of um, large and unattractive features. Like Like her nose and I think her lips too. There were pictures of her, but people were basically just like, she's not cheating on him because no one else would have her. So that was, it's really mean and fucked up, but that was basically what people thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, big lips doesn't sound that bad. I wish I had big lips. I think they weren't big, big, like nice and luscious. I think they were kind of fucked up. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. In April of 1934, police were called to the Ruxton home after the couple had another fight. Ruxton allegedly told the officer, quote, Sergeant, I feel like murdering two persons. My wife is going out to meet a man. Which is a weird God statement. Damn it, Buck. Yeah. Get it together. <laughs> In September of 1935, Isabella, who had been going by the name Isabella Ruxton, despite the two never legally marrying, traveled to Edinburgh to visit her sister. Ruxton did not accompany Isabella and stayed home to tend to his patients. While there, a family called the Edmondsons came to visit as well. The Ruxtons and the Edmondsons were closely acquainted, and the Edmondsons were a prominent family in Lancaster, and Isabella was known to be close to a young man in the family named Robert Edmondson, Uh who worked as an assistant editor at Town Hall. Well, maybe Robert liked her big lips. Maybe. Ruxton long suspected that Isabella had been having an affair with Edmondson and worried that this trip was an excuse for the two to carry on the infidelity. However, records kept at a local hotel indicate that both adults stayed in separate rooms during this visit, which, I mean, means nothing, but but okay. On September 14th, 1935, Isabella Ruxton went to visit two of her sisters in Blackpool and went to view the Blackpool Illuminations, which is a famous light festival held annually, and I think this was the first year it ever opened. She left Blackpool to return to Lancashire at around 11.30 p.m. When she returned to the home on Dalton Square, Ruxton was in a paranoia-induced frenzy. He strangled Isabella until she was unconscious and then beat and stabbed her body until she was dead. Okay, question yeah. real quick. Where's the kids? They're upstairs sleeping. Oh, okay, good, good, They good, stayed good, good, with, good, good. with him and the nanny while she was away. I think she was only away for like two or three days, so. They don't want to see the lights, apparently. No. Seems like something. That was an adult-only trip. I mean, so. it seems like something kids would like, but okay. No, she's like, I'm not dragging Let's all three of them. Let's leave him with the husband that cries all the time. <laughs> Just sitting in the corner crying, Uh, and they're like, Your mother doesn't love me. Yeah. They're like, Dad, we're three. Yeah. (laughs) Please feed us and show us the love. We'd really like to watch the Disney Channel, but it hasn't been invented. (laughs) Ruxton then turned his attention to Mary Jane Rogerson, who (gasps) may have witnessed the murder. He kills the nanny. Ruxton bludgeoned. This is not good for me, (gasps) the nanny. No, this is really bad for you. Also, and it's not like, oh, they were having an affair or something. It's just like she witnessed him murder his wife. And then he was like, oops, got to kill her too. So Ruxton bludgeoned and strangled or asphyxiated Rogerson and stabbed her either before or after her death. Not clear. I'm going to tell you why it's not clear. The day before the murders, Ruxton had instructed two cleaning ladies not to come to the home until Monday, September 16th. He told the women that Isabella and Rogerson had traveled to Edinburgh, and because of this, their services were not needed until Monday, because, you know, obviously, the wife's not home, so nothing yeah. gets dirty. After murdering... You know how dirty she is. <laughs> dirty, dirty wives. <laughs> he starts crying again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
After murdering Isabella and Rogerson, Ruxton drove their three children to the home of a dentist and family friend. His friend examined a cut on his hand, which he had sustained during the attacks. What did he tell his friend, though? He, he said he slammed it in a door. You know how that makes a cut. cut yeah, they're so Although sharp. they cut my finger off. Yeah, but you were a tiny child, and those are easy to cut off. little digits so he asked the friend to watch the children for the day and then he returned home to dismember the bodies he took both corpses to one of the bathrooms in the home and attempted to mutilate them to obscure their identities ruxton then wrapped the body parts in newspaper and dumped them under a bridge in a stream called garden home lynn in moffat at 4.30 p.m., Ruxton visited one of his patients named Mrs. Hampshire. And Can I ask you a question yeah. real quick? Mm-hmm. What's the difference between Britain and Great Britain? I think Britain and Great Britain are the same thing, but I think England and Great Britain are different. We've proven we're bad at geography. I was just thinking, I was like, where in Britain is this? Yeah, so, or okay. where in England is this? So this is kind of, I can't answer that. It's kind of on the border of Scotland, Scotland? and England. Um, because Edinburgh is Scotland. So she's going across the border to visit her family. Moffat is in Scotland. Okay. Where the bodies are dumped. And then, but neither of those are Britain? No, they're Britain. This is very confusing. Um, are they all on the island? (laughs) (laughs) Or is there Britain, is one of them on the mainland? No, right? They're all on that little island. It's all the island, yeah. Where's Ireland? (laughs) Different. It's away. (laughs) At 4.30 p.m., Ruxton visited one of his patients named Mrs. Hampshire and asked her and her husband to come to his home and help him prepare it for decorators who were scheduled to arrive the following morning. He told them that his wife had gone to Blackpool and his maid was on vacation and that he couldn't clean because of the cut on his hand. According according to the Hampshires, the house was in a state of total disarray. All of the carpeting on the stairs had been removed and there were places where straw littered the floor. Mrs. Hampshire could see straw protruding from underneath the bedroom door, which was locked. There were also rolled up sections of carpeting, stair pads, and a stained suit in the waiting room of the clinic. Before the Hampshires left the home, Ruxton gave them sections of stained stair carpeting and his stained suit to keep, only on the condition that they thoroughly clean them. On the morning of... (laughs) We want all this cut up carpet. Thanks. Thanks. We love people's trash. Yes. (laughs) On the morning of September 29th, 1935, a young woman named Susan Haynes Johnson was walking over an old stone bridge in Moffat over an area of water known as... What do you think this... The stream's known as. Um, this isn't England, it's Britain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Lagoon. its name. Yeah. <laughs> no, its street name was the Devil's Beef Tub. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. <laughs> Who would? It's beef Tub. Yeah, but it's a beef tub, but it's Why owned the by the have, devil. Why does the devil have a beef tub? Just that's where he keeps it. <laughs> His tub. Yeah. It, which sounds like a euphemism for a vagina, but okay. It sounds like that's where you put the bodies. Yeah, well, that's what he did. Let the bodies hit the beef tub. <laughs> yep. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Johnson decided to peer over the ledge of the water and noticed a bundle wrapped in fabric Don't on the look banks of the stream. Into the beef tub. <laughs> She's looking straight it's into like, I the beef if there's tub. Real beef in there. <laughs> I am quite hungry. <laughs> the bundle was lodged against a boulder and a partially decomposed human arm was protruding from it. Uh-oh. So it's like, oh shit. Police were called and discovered the remains. There were four bundles found. 
The first was wrapped in a blouse and had two upper arm pieces and four pieces of miscellaneous flesh. The second had two thigh bones, two legs that were mostly stripped of flesh, nine pieces of loose flesh, and was wrapped in a pillowcase. The third bundle was wrapped in a piece of cotton sheeting and had 17 pieces of human flesh in it. The last bundle contained a human trunk, I don't know what that is. <laughs> like the, the trunk the of... abdomen, lower abdomen, I guess. Or I was thinking like the trunk of your legs. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't specify. Or maybe, yeah, maybe your abdomen or something. Yeah. Two legs with the feet tied together and some pieces of strong cotton also wrapped in a piece of sheeting. Two other packages were later recovered that contained two human heads. One of the heads was wrapped in a child's romper. Oh, I bet you it was cute. Yeah. And sections of the Daily Herald newspaper from August 6th and 31st, 1935, along with two forearms tied together but missing the top joints of the fingers and thumbs, and several pieces of flesh. The second head was wrapped in sections of the Sunday Graphic from September 15th and updated sections of the Sunday Chronicle. He's an idiot. Don't wrap it in the newspaper. The with newspapers dates. are a big clue. Yeah, of course they are. Pieces of a human pelvis and torso were later found in the nearby Annan River, along with other sections of flesh. Lots of flesh all over. All of the pieces found were in an advanced state of decomposition. The remains were examined on October 1st at the Moffat Mortuary by forensic scientists named Professor John Flaster Jr. and Dr. Gilbert Miller. There were 70 human body parts in total, though investigators had no idea how many people they could belong to. Miller, Can you just count how many heads there are or how many feet? Well, they don't, they're like, maybe we haven't found all of them. So Miller and Flaster determined that the parts belonged to two females of very different ages and heights. They also, also one ugly. Yes. They were like, oh, <laughs> this one. Oh, turned it away. <laughs> it's just this so gruesome back. scene and they just, oh. <laughs> They also hypothesized that whoever had dismembered the bodies had extensive anatomical knowledge, like a surgeon. Or a butcher. Yes. <laughs> but we already know who killed yes. them, so I don't know why I threw that in. But... <laughs> they deduced that the mutilation had been performed using a surgical knife. Shouldn't have done that. That's so small, though. Well, a surgical knife might be different than a scalpel. Yeah, maybe. I always just think scalpel. Yeah. The murderer had also removed the eyes, ears, lips, skin, soft tissue, and some teeth from and both ate heads. Them? No. <laughs> Can you tell me he didn't eat them, though? I can't tell you for sure. So he ate them. <laughs> uh, so this was to hinder identification of the bodies. Because of this, composite drawings and dental record identification were out of the question. Because the fingertips of the victims had been removed, fingerprints couldn't be recovered. Investigators did not think that the murderer was familiar with the area because they chose to throw the remains in a tributary river instead of the nearby Anon River, which would have taken the packages into the Solway Firth and delayed or prevented the discovery of the remains. What a noob. So he threw it in the wrong river. He just wanted that reveal of it being the devil's the devil's beef tub. beef tub yes ruxton could have mistaken the lynn river for the anon because it was swollen by heavy rains at the time the bodies were then transported to the university of edinburgh and were treated with ether to prevent further decomposition and eliminate the maggot infestation that plagued the body parts I bet you they smelled great oh i'm sure it was just so fun to go through like, mm, maggots yeah 
The remains were preserved in formalin solution before Professor Glaster, Professor James Cooper Brash, and Professor Sidney Smith began piecing the body parts together to conduct a formal autopsy. Another bundle was recovered while the professors were working, this time two forearms with hands attached. The fingerprints hadn't been completely destroyed. Yeah like the pair of hands that they had discovered initially. From these remains, investigators were able to recover a complete set of fingerprints. Ooh, but did they, I mean, how many people got fingerprinted back then? That's a great question. I don't know. I'm sure it wasn't as common as today. Yeah. Even with the corpses in the lab, it was extremely difficult to pin down a time of death for the two victims. Dumfrieshire police reached out to Glasgow-based entomologist Dr. Alexander Mearns. Forensic entomology, or the study of insects as they relate to crime and evidence, was a fledgling practice at the time. Dr. Mearns examined the maggots found on the remains to identify what life cycle the pupae were in when the bodies were preserved. From his examination, Dr. Mearns found that the pupae were that of a blowfly known as the Califora vicina, and they had been laid in the immediate vicinity of the bodies. Using the state of the maggots, Dr. Mearns calculated that the bodies could not have been at the discovery site for less than 12 to 14 days. This put the date of disposal at September 17, 1935. While Dr. Mearns was busy revolutionizing forensic science, Glaster and Smith were trying to identify the victims. They determined that one of the bodies was that of a woman somewhere between 30 and 55 years old. Well. More, that's a long range. But more likely between 35 and 45. And that the second victim was either 20 or 21 at the time of her death. The first woman had... Sus they really got in on her. Yeah. They, they're like, this one we know. Yeah. The first woman had sustained five stab wounds to the chest, multiple broken bones, and numerous bruises. Her lungs were congested and her hyoid bone was broken which indicated that she had been strangled before she died. The second victim showed signs of excessive blunt force trauma, but the professors could not determine what instrument was used to inflict those wounds. The professors estimated that the dismemberment and mutilation of the bodies would likely have taken eight hours to complete not including the time it took to drain them of blood and viscera before the mutilation. Even though the killer took extensive measures to ensure that the bodies could not be traced back to him, he left a vital piece of evidence, the Sunday graphic newspaper. That particular edition of the newspaper had only been circulated in the Morecam and Lancaster areas of England on September 15th. This told investigators that the killer most likely lived in northwest England in one of these two towns. Scotland Yard investigator Jeremiah Lynch began searching through missing persons reports in the area to try and find a match to the murdered women. Some of the pieces of fabric that the remains had been wrapped in were distinctive and had repair patches, which could help identify who they belonged to. Because one bundle was wrapped in a child's romper, it was surmised that one or both of the women had given birth to a child at some point, which is mm -hmm. a leap, but okay. Five days after the remains were discovered, Ruxton visited Lancaster police and told them that his wife had left him again. He also visited the home of Mary Rogerson's parents and told them that Rogerson had been having an affair with a local boy 
and had become pregnant. He claimed that Isabella had arranged for Rogerson to have an abortion and had taken her away for the operation. He urged Rogerson's parents not to call the police because their daughter could be arrested since abortion was illegal. On October 1st, Rogerson's parents visited Ruxton at his practice to inquire about their daughter. He told them that Rogerson and Isabella had broken into his safe and stolen 30 pounds before running off. He insisted that both women would return when the money ran out, but the Rogersons became suspicious. The following day, they filed a missing persons report with the Morecam police. It had been three weeks since they last saw their daughter on September 14th. Ruxton eventually reported Isabella missing on October 4th, two days later. On October 9th, Scottish police asked the Rogersons to identify sections of clothing found with the bodies. They immediately recognized a blouse with a repair beneath the armpit as Mary Jane Rogerson's. The Rogersons did not recognize the child's jumper, but Mrs. Rogerson suggested police show it to Edith Holm, who had hosted Isabella Rogerson and the children on a vacation. Why wouldn't they be like, but she is a nanny for this family. It's <laughs> well, probably that child. Well, yeah, she was like, I can't identify this romper for sure. There's this woman who probably can. But she was like, yeah, she was with all of them. Gotcha. Mrs. Holm recognized the rompers as a pair that she had purchased for one of the Ruxton children. Police also spoke to Mrs. Agnes Oxley, one of the cleaners, who told them that on September 15th, Ruxton had told her not to come to the home until the following day. She reported that the house had been in shambles, the carpets had been removed, a pile of burnt fabric was in the garden, and the bathtub had been stained a strange yellow color. Ruxton had specifically asked her to clean the bathtub that day and told her that He couldn't because he had jammed his hand in a door. Police visited Buck Ruxton at his home to question him, and he burst into tears and complained that... He always (laughs) does. He always does. That's his go-to. And complained that local rumors had been circulating that were hurting his practice and his personal life. And his feelings. Yes. (laughs) He's like, my feelings. (laughs) By this time, Ruxton was considered the prime suspect in the disappearance of his wife and maid. On the night... she was a nanny. Made nanny. She cleaned and took care of kids. But they have cleaners. They come like a few times a week. They're not like all the time. That's a lot of times to clean your house. It seems like they have nothing to do. Yeah. Like they don't do anything. Yeah. But on October 12th, 1935, Ruxton was arrested by Lancaster police. Questioned throughout the night, he was asked to account for his whereabouts between September 14th and the 29th. And he produced a handwritten document titled, My Movements. Not bowel. Parentheses, not Not bowel. Ruxton denied he had ever been to Scotland since establishing his practice in Lancaster, but he wasn't able to explain why his car and license plate number had been recorded by a cyclist that he had knocked over in the town of Kendall on September 17th. Be more careful, dude. He dumped bodies and then almost ran over a bicyclist crazy. Ruxton was also unable to explain why police discovered traces of blood on the stairs, railings, and carpets in the home. Police had also discovered traces of human fat and body tissue in the drains on the property. While Lancaster police questioned Ruxton, Scottish police were able to match the fingerprints of the severed hands to Mary Jane Rogerson because they took fingerprints from things of hers. Ruxton was formally charged with the murder of Mary Jane Rogerson at 7.20 a.m on October 13th. 
On November 5th, Ruxton was charged with the murder of his wife, Isabella Ruxton. Her remains had been identified using a forensic anthropology technique by which an x-ray of the victim's skull was superimposed on a photograph of the victim taken when they were alive. Which doesn't sound very scientific, but but okay. Maybe back then, it's all the rage. (laughs) Professor James Cooper Brash was able to construct replicas of the victim's left feet in a gelatin glycerin mixture that fit into their shoes. So they Cinderella'd them. Yeah. (laughs) But not that that matters because lots of people can have a size like seven shoe, but okay. I'm sure there was only like five sizes back then. On March 2nd, 1936, Buck Ruxton's trial began at Manchester's High Court of Justice. He was tried for the murder of Isabella Ruxton, his common-law wife. Ruxton entered a plea of not guilty, and his defense argued that the bodies had been misidentified and that Rogerson and Isabella were alive but missing. Whoa, whoa. Numerous witnesses were called to testify, and forensic evidence was challenged by the defense, who argued that blood traces could have been the result of operations performed by Ruxton in his practice or from one of the women's menstrual cycles. You know how much you bleed on a fucking menstrual cycle. <laughs> Mine just cycle. goes everywhere, you know? That's so fucking stupid. Back then they didn't <laughs> know. So Men stupid. were just like, yeah, I guess yeah, so. I, you just know, it just goes the... everywhere. You've seen it. <laughs> I just lock my wife out of the house for that week, yeah, so I don't just, really know. We make her stay in a tent in the backyard. Yes. <laughs> he did not perform well on the stand when he was called as a witness. Did he cry? Um, yeah, he came across as unhinged. He cried hysterically, clutched a cell handkerchief, and repeatedly swore Fainted. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> reportedly swore that Isabella had taken Rogerson to get an abortion. He admitted to frequently fighting with his wife over infidelity and gave rambling and contradictory accounts when questioned and complained that his happy home had been torn apart by these murder accusations. But not by the murderers. No. He's like, my wife's missing, but that's fine. The kids seem okay with it. So after 11 days, the trial came to an end. The jury deliberated for just over an hour before returning a verdict of guilty. The presiding judge, Justice Singleton, sentenced Ruxton to death. When asked to give a statement to the court, Ruxton said, I am very sorry. Ruxton filed. Cool. No tears then. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's just dry as He's a bone. Like Ariana Grande, no tears left to cry. Yeah. Ruxton filed an appeal against his conviction on the grounds that the judge's instructions to the jury were incomplete and biased. He also contended that the forensic examination of his car, which yielded no evidence of blood or mud, should have been taken into account, but the jury wasn't instructed to do so. The appeal was dismissed on April 27, 1936. Ruxton then collected 10,000 signatures from Lancaster residents urging clemency, but it proved fruitless. Yeah. Who would sign that? I don't know. They were like, just don't kill him. On May 12, 1936, Buck Ruxton was hanged at HM Prison, Manchester by executioner Albert Pierrepont. Wow, it's weird that we know who the executioner was. I know, right? I was like, might as well throw it in. Also, he was like the first Indian man to be hung in Britain. Right after Ruxton's execution, a newspaper published a handwritten confession penned by the killer the day after his arrest. This confession was left with instructions to only be opened after his execution and to be returned to him if he was acquitted. Ooh. (laughs) In this letter, Ruxton admitted to killing his wife while in a state of jealous rage. He claimed that he was interrupted by Rogerson and that he attacked and killed her to eliminate any witnesses. The bathtub from the Dalton Square home had been recovered and used as evidence in Ruxton's trial. Afterwards, it was used as a horse trough 
by the mounted police in Lancashire County. Elizabeth, Diane, and William Ruxton were raised in an orphanage Hmm, following their mother's mother's death and their father's execution. Mary Jane Rogerson's torso was never found (gasps) and likely washed out into the Solway Firth. The rest of her remains were buried in a churchyard in Overton. The spot where Ruxton dumped the mutilated remains became known to locals as... Ruxton's dump. The case. Why? Pick and they pick have a better names. The worst names yeah. for these places. The case became infamous in Britain and was immortalized in a television series and in print as the bodies under the bridge case and the jigsaw murders because it was a puzzle putting them back together. Game. He also painted his cheeks red. <laughs> yeah. I didn't uh, imagine that he, he had, had a, a little white tricycle. Face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that he. Stole one of his kids' bikes to, yeah, to do it. Wheel the bodies there, <laughs> piece by piece. <laughs> My case doesn't have as good of an ending. Oh no! So, good. Like, why there were no horse n- troughs? No, it's not satisfying like yours. Oh, is. okay. So Sharon Kinney was born Sharon Elizabeth Hall on November thirtieth, nineteen thirty-nine, mm-hmm. in Independence, Missouri, to Eugene and Doris. I just like this oh. name. Old-fashioned. Yeah, it's very old-fashioned. So there's not a lot of her childhood, like young mm-hmm. childhood. But when she was in junior high, her family moved to Washington State. Mm-hmm. But by the time she was 15, they had moved back to Missouri. Okay. So so in the summer of 1956, 16-year-old Sharon meets a 22-year-old college student named James Kinney at a church function. Oh. Ooh, scandalous. The couple dates regularly, and they meet at church... A lot to like, you know, whatever. Mm. <laughs> do whatever you do whatever in churches. You do at ch- pray. Yeah. Confess together. I do want to point out, though, he's 22, she's 16. So he is a pedophile. Oh, gross. Yes. But it's okay because they're churchgoers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then James returns to Brigham Young University. Oh, are they Mormon? The they're Mormon, right? Because Brigham Young is mainly a Mormon. Yeah, but school. I don't know if they're Mormon. It doesn't say. Yeah, it they make really good ice cream. Yeah. So Sharon is deeply interested in finding a partner with prospects who can take her away from independence. Which is like, she I don't know why. no why, independence? Yeah, I don't know why she doesn't want to live in Missouri her whole life. <laughs> yeah. Baffling. Yeah. She's a real enigma. But apparently she fucking hated living in the Midwest. <laughs> And kind of wanted, like, a fun city girl life. Yeah. She wanted to marry someone, like, rich, and she wouldn't have to work, and she'd just, Don't like... Don't we all want that? <laughs> I mean, come on. But suddenly, she writes a letter to James, informing him that she was pregnant, uh, which seems a little convenient, but whatever. I'm not questioning her. But I've been away for a year. <laughs> James, of course, like a good religious boy, yeah. leave. he takes a break from BYU and returns to Independence, where he marries Sharon on October 18, 1956. The couple's marriage license falsely identifies Sharon as being 18 because you oh, can't marry a child. No. So If you have to fake someone's age, it's not probably not good. Yeah. They're not old enough. You shouldn't be doing it. She's also listed as a widow. Apparently, Sharon told people that um, at the time that she had been married when she lived in Washington. When she was four. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was in junior high. Uh, oh, my God. So, like, 12. Um, who had later died in a car accident. But I don't, I mean, I think she told this to people after she told them she was 18. But I don't know why, because this it doesn't help no you. Sense. The lie about no. the age helps you get the license. I don't know why you'd lie about being a widow. Mar- yeah, because that, again, is like, wait, what? That yeah, puts more suspicion right, on like, you. Okay, why? you're 18, so 
in this last year, you lost a husband and then got remarried, is yeah. what you're telling us. Because she's just sitting in the widow's ther- yeah. group therapy session. <laughs> they get married at City Hall, but then they, they hold a formal wedding the next year in Salt Lake Temple. So mm-hmm. I guess they probably are Mormon. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wrote down the little Okay. Wait. And Sharon joins the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, which uh-huh. is the church that they all belong mm-hmm. to. But I guess yep. you have to do a formal ceremony at some point. Yeah, it's strict. Um, after their wedding, the couple moves to Provo, Utah, and James returns um, to his studies at BYU. He then puts them on hold again at the end of the fall semester. Mm. And the Kinneys return to Independence, where they both took jobs. Sharon babysits and tends to shops. And James worked as an electrical engineer at Bendix Aviation. Great. And the parents are like, are you sure you know how to, like, you've babysat before? And she's like, it's fine. I'm a widow. Yes. (laughs) Sharon claims to have miscarried the child that had brought their marriage. She then becomes pregnant again, though. And in the fall of 1957, she gives birth to a girl that they named Dana. Sharon was reportedly a lavish spender. Which was no bueno because no. <laughs> no James bueno. made a modest salary that like could afford their home and their yeah they're like she, he's like listen lifestyle. you have to babysit yeah. like you have to that's that's where we're at right and they rented a home next to his parents' house in like a ranch styled home that was built at seventeen zero zero nine East Twenty Six Terrence. In Independence. I don't know why I put that address in, but, you know. It's in there. James worked the night shift at Bendix, and his wife initially filled her days with shopping. (laughs) That's not not a daily activity. (laughs) It's okay. Later on, she filled it with men. Oh, well, so I'm she, I'm so yeah, glad she found she a hobby. Once she has a baby, he's like, of course you don't have to work. Take care of our baby. Once your She's vagina's like, destroyed, let's, yeah. let's really just... So by the time the couple has a second child, who they named Troy, Sharon was carrying on regular extramarital affairs with her friend from high school named John Boldies. Uh, so it's just this, this John guy? Yeah, at this point it is. Mm-hmm. By the early 1960s, James was contemplating a divorce. Mm-hmm. Don't know why. <laughs> It's not obvious probably, at all. Probably because she spent a lot of money and also fucked she, a bunch of guys. She spends all his money and sleeps with everyone but him. Yep. So, I mean. She was also probably a terror. I can't. I mean, she was probably just a major bitch. You right, think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's fucking cheating on him and spending all his money. It seems like she's just never home. I think she probably was like, I need my money. Yeah. Work more. And at this time, she's what, 19? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something like that. No, she's a little older. It's the early 1960s. Okay. 24-ish. Oh, okay. So it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get married in 56. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So he went and spoke to his parents about possibly divorcing on March 18th, 1960. And he tells them that Sharon had agreed to give him a divorce Mm -hmm. if he allows her to keep the house and the (laughs) couple's daughter, but not the son. No. What a dick. Yeah, she decided which one she yep. liked. <laughs> and if he paid her $1,000. So Flat fee or every month? <laughs> it seems like a flat fee. Okay. But back then, that was a lot of money. That, yeah, that's a lot of money. So James's parents, who were devout Mormons, urged him to stay in his unhappy marriage. Yeah, because space Jesus wouldn't like it. God would, he yeah. doesn't want, he wants you to be miserable. Yes. He needs you to suffer. With this horrendous woman. Because his son woman. did. <laughs> who is so, also him yeah <laughs> sharon was also thinking about ways out of the marriage according to Boldies, she once offered him a thousand dollars to kill her husband great yep or find someone who would although later he claims that she might have been joking i found this in 
it was a show called Killer Spouses. So you oh, can imagine yeah. what ends up happening. Yeah. <laughs> I think the title of the episode says it all. Yeah. <laughs> so by this point, James and Sharon were sleeping in different rooms. They're miserable, but not mm-hmm. divorced yet. In March uh, 19th, 1960, at around 5.30 p.m., Sharon hears a gunshot while she's in the bedroom, while she's in her bedroom, and it's coming from James's bedroom. Mm-hmm. She enters his room, and she finds her two-and-a-half-year-old Dana on the bed next to her father. Dana was holding one of James's guns, a high-standard twenty-two target pistol, and James was bleeding from a gunshot wound to the back of his head. Sharon immediately called the police, but James was dead by the time they arrived. How old is Dana again? Two and a half. Police were unable uh. to recover any fingerprints from the well-oiled grip of the pistol. Mm. A gunshot residue test was not performed on Dana or Sharon. Mm-hmm. Multiple people, though, including family and neighbors, told police that James had often allowed Dana to play with his guns. What? Wait, why? Why? It, yeah. Oh, my and God. And a test by uh, police officers proved that Dana was able to pull a trigger on a gun matching the one that killed her father. So she was able to fire a gun. But she could barely wipe her own ass so with no evidence to the contrary investigators ruled the case an accidental homicide yeah Um, sure the pistol was taken into custody obviously and never returned to sharon despite her efforts to reclaim it for some odd reason it's mine yeah give it back give it back i want the gun she later bought a gun from her male friend it was a 22 caliber automatic pistol so i guess she liked 22 and when the friend it's my favorite caliber (laughs) i love that number (laughs) when the friend told sharon that he had registered the gun in her name she requested that he re-register in another name other than hers Uh, and he just did it great so with the investigation closed james was buried and his wife collected his insurance policy that valued at twenty nine thousand dollars which is two hundred and thirty thousand dollars in today's money so we're gonna jump a bit yeah let's talk about a woman named patricia patricia jones was born Patricia Clements. She's one of six children in Missouri. Mm-hmm. After graduating from Benton High School, she marries Walter T. Jones Jr., her high school sweetheart. Oh. Walter enlisted in the Marine Corps shortly after their marriage, and the couple relocated to the West Coast for a while. But after his discharge, they returned to Missouri, and they settle in Independence, and they have two children. By the 1960s, almost five years into their marriage, Joan was working as a file clerk in the interna- uh, Internal Revenue Services while her husband sold cars. Mm-hmm. Despite his marriage and children, Walter reportedly had a wandering eye. Which is Uh-oh. like a fun, cute way to be like, he's a cheater. Yeah. Cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. He sucks. Eater. <laughs> yeah. On April 18th, Walter meets... This bitch. Sharon. Yes. <laughs> when That's she's buying a Ford Thunderbird... With the insurance payout from her husband's <gasps> death. Oh, no. The two began an affair shortly thereafter. Sharon viewed him as a prospect for a second husband. But Walter was uninterested in leaving Patricia, claiming that despite their rockiness of the relationship, he loved her. Just mm. like kind yeah. of sweet, but also like, well, maybe you also should just not fix your enough. marriage. Yeah. Because yeah. like, what a way to fucking show it. <laughs> So he declined to go on a trip to Washington with Sharon in May that she like planned and then just surprised him with. And he was yeah. like, I'm, I'm married. <laughs> despite this, I'm happily married to yeah. my, like, I want to be with her. Uh huh. Where I, we just fucking. I just want side snacks. Yeah. So she instead goes with her brother. <laughs> She's like, what? what a miserable Yeah, trip. that's really <laughs> weird. So, on May 25th, she gets back from her vacation and they fuck again. But she then tells Walter that she's pregnant and that he's the father of the baby. And she thinks that Walter's about to propose, but instead he claims that he's still not planning on divorcing Patricia. Mm -hmm. And that he'll just have to come clean. He 
He's like, I guess I'll have to tell Patricia. Oh, shit. But I'm not leaving my wife. Yeah. I really love my wife. Uh-huh. So for some reason, he just so needed weird. extra pussy. Maybe yeah. Patricia sucked in bed. Maybe he, um, maybe he, he just has like these, just maybe he has commitment person. issues. Yeah, and he's or just something. Like, but he loves her enough to be like, I'm not leaving her. Yeah. I don't, so I don't know so what it weird. was. It's a weird, it's a weird happening. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm blaming her when I said she was bad in bed. No, for, no. It's not her fault. But no, I'm it's, thinking, it's like, something with him. Yeah. Also, yeah. this is back in the day where husbands just kind of did whatever they did. Yeah. Because they were assholes. Weren't accountable for yeah. shit. So, according to Sharon's later testimony, on the afternoon of May 26th, she contacted Patricia at her office and told her that Walter was having an affair with Sharon's sister. So, didn't tell <laughs> okay, it was her. Then. She was like, She's, he's sleeping with my sister. Yeah. And she meets with Patricia in the evening to discuss the matter for, further, and then she drops her off at the Joneses house. Mm-hmm. However, Patricia never made it to her home that evening. <gasps> According to her husband, who filed a missing persons report the next day, mm-hmm. he didn't see his wife. She had left the house mysteriously that afternoon and never came back. Walter begins calling people he thinks might have seen his wife. Yeah. And he gets a lead when he speaks to one of Patricia's friends who carpools to work with her. Mm -hmm. And the friend told Walter that Patricia had received a phone call in the day. And she asked the the man who was in the carpool. She was like, can you drop me off at this corner street and I'll walk the rest of the way. And so the carpool driver drops her off at that street corner and leaves. Mm -hmm. And he sees Patricia meet another woman. Yeah. And he describes that woman to Walter. And Walter's like, that's fucking Sharon. Yeah. So he asks Sharon if he'd seen or spoken to her, his wife. And Sharon says that she did indeed see Patricia that day. She had met her to tell her about Walter's affair. <laughs> but she still claims that she dropped her near the Joneses' house. And that Patricia started speaking to a man in a green 1957 Ford. He later, this is just like an extra story. He later meets with Sharon. He's like, no, we need to meet in person. Mm -hmm. And he's like, tell me everything you know. And that's when she comes up with the Ford theory or whatever. But he later admits that he went so far as to hold a key to her throat threateningly. I was like, how would a key do anything? I mean, I guess if you stabbed it hard enough, but like. Listen, if you stab anything hard enough, I mean. But I like that that was like his breakdown. He was like, I held the key to her. I feel so bad about it. Yeah. Sharon's response after leaving Walter was to call Boldies and ask him to help her search for Patricia. Mm. Shortly before midnight, within hours of Sharon and Walter's conversation, her and Boldies find the body of a woman in a secluded area, one mile outside of Independence, Missouri. According to Boldies, he had been the one to suggest searching in that area when they encountered the body. It was in the same spot that they had often gone on dates. Mm -hmm. So the body, dressed in a black sweater and yellow skirt, was soon identified as Patricia Jones. She had been shot four times by a 22 caliber pistol. Although the fatal wound was a shot to Patricia's head entering near her mouth on an upward trajectory, she had also had one bullet through her abdomen and two penetrating gunshot wounds to her shoulders in a downward trajectory. So huh. it was like she was shot in the back a bunch yeah. and then someone walked around and shot her again. Yeah. So like it was a weird powder burns on the hemline of her skirt, which had been raised to her waist, but there was no sign of rape or yeah. sexual assault, indicated that the gun had been fired from a close range at least once. Initial investigation placed Patricia's time of death at 9 p.m. on May 27th. Four days later, on May 31st, Jones was buried. Investigators immediately questioned Walter, Sharon, and Boldies. Mm-hmm. All three were questioned on May 28th, and Walter and Boldies both gave written statements admitting that they had dated Sharon. Mm-hmm. And both agreed to take lie detector tests. 
Sharon gave an oral statement to police, but declined to sign a written one. Mm-hmm. And she said she wouldn't take a lie detector test. Mm-hmm. She was questioned on May 30th. And on May 31st, the polygraph tests were given to the two men. Mm-hmm. And both passed. Okay. Sharon's brother, Eugene, was also questioned, but he declined to answer questions, but he doesn't seem to be involved in any way. Yeah. So he might have just been like, oh, my sister definitely did it, and I just yeah. don't want to implicate her. A twenty two caliber rifle slug was eventually found buried in the ground where Patricia's body had been found, providing evidence that at least some of her wounds had been sustained at the place her body was found. Uh-huh. Although investigators went so far as to drag the bottom of nearby bodies of water, oh. uh, the gun that had shot Patricia could not be found. Okay. So they never found that gun. But they know it's a twenty two. Yep. A white powdery substance was found in Patricia's hair, which initially was believed to be trace evidence of some other crime scenario but was later determined to be fly eggs ew ah i thought you were gonna say cocaine no fly eggs oh so kinney was arrested at her home for the murder at 11 p.m on may 31st the same night as patricia jones's funeral and the same day that the sheriff requested that prosecutors consider a second charge of murder against her husband. Mm. So they were like, oh, by the way, yeah, you should check into her husband again. Sharon's lawyer, Alex Peebles, and Martha Sperry Hickman filed a writ of habeas corpus mm-hmm. with the court the next morning, which resulted in Sharon's release on $20,000 bond which her family paid for her. Mm-hmm. Police were able to rule out that it wasn't the same gun, the one that okay. killed Patricia and the mm-hmm. one that killed her husband, because the gun was still in the sheriff's office. So they were like, we okay. still have yeah, that. Yeah, because they never yeah. released it to her. Right. Mm-hmm. However, the man then came forward and was like, but I bought Sharon a twenty two caliber yeah. pistol. But they weren't able to locate the gun at her house, and so it was really just his word against Sharon's at yeah. that point, because there was no proof. And that he, he ended up changing the name. So, like, on the registration, so... So it It wasn't even like a gun was purchased for, yeah. In her name. So they did, however, find a, like a gun box and Sharon at first claimed to investigators that she had a gun, but she lost it when she brought it to Washington. And then she simply stated later on that the gun had disappeared. Mm -hmm. And on June 2nd, Walter was also taken into custody as a material witness in the case. And he paid the $2,000 bond to get Mm -hmm. out of jail, but... The autopsy performed on Patricia Jones was criticized by police and prosecutors um, because they felt the recovery of the bullets and the testing of the stomach contents should have been done by the examiner, which mm-hmm. they should have, and that the body had been prepared by an undertaker prior to the autopsy oh, so no. that the chemicals altered the results, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So on June 17th, Patricia's body was exhumed in order to collect the bullets that had been left behind. Mm. Because they only collected, like, two of them. Yeah. As well as to gather uh, tissue and stomach contents, if possible. Sharon's arrangement on July 11th resulted in a denial of bail, so she mm-hmm. couldn't get out. But her lawyers basically got that, like, thrown out. Yeah. And so, eventually, she was freed on $24,000 bail, which is almost $200,000 in 2013, mm-hmm. when this article that I was reading was. So, on July 18th, she gets out. Mm-hmm. After her trial date, she gives birth. To another daughter named Marla Christine on January 16th, 1961. So... Whose kid is it? They think it's Walter's, but it could be... The other dude. Yeah. Yeah. So, although she's charged with two murders now... Yeah. Because now she's charged with her husband. Mm -hmm. The trial for the murder of Patricia Jones begins in mid-June of 1961, Mm -hmm. pushing that her husband's trial later, even though it was committed first, technically. 
opening arguments come out and basically one side is that Sharon's a psychopath and that she killed Patricia because she wanted her husband and mm. the other argument is basically like oh well Boldiz is the one who found the body and there's no real proof about any of this it's yeah. just speculation and they try to blame it on Walter and they say that the baby is in fact Walter's and that when she told Walter she was pregnant by him he attempted to end the relationship with Patricia so okay. she was like I told him I was pregnant mm-hmm. and he would he said he would end the relationship with Patricia and then all of a sudden she ends up dead. Yeah. The prosecution's unable to establish that Sharon owned or had once owned a 22 caliber. After slightly over one and a half hours of deliberation, the jury, citing just too many loopholes mm. left in the prosecution's case, acquitted Sharon Qu- Kinney. So she's acquitted. Immediately after the delivery of the verdict, juror Ogden Stevens asked Sharon for her autograph, which what? she gave him. And then she was immediately returned to jail to await the for trial the next, for yeah. her murder, the murder of her husband. So let's go into this. Okay. The first trial of the death of James Kinney came in 1962. When jury selection began on January 8th, 1962, Hill noted that he did not intend to pursue the death penalty. So this is the same lawyer as the other case. Mm-hmm. It was the same prosecutor and she has the same lawyer. Yeah. So he's not pursuing the death penalty. And Boldiz testifies for the prosecution saying that Sharon offered him $1,000 in return. Mm-hmm. for the murder but then on the stand he says it was a joke so Hill was forced to attack his own witness's credibility yeah they do bring up that Sharon had known at the time that she would collect his life insurance policy but only while he she was still his wife so mm-hmm. she would have had to kill him before a divorce. Before, yeah. But the defense led by her attorneys focused on the circumstantial quality of the prosecution's evidence, noting that prior police investigation had determined James' death to be obviously accidental. Yeah. Is what they said in there, you know. They claimed that Boldiz was just some poor mixed up kid who would sign anything. Mm-hmm. So, and at this time, he had already been torn apart by the prosecution too. So, yeah. basically, everyone was like, oh, so this guy knows nothing. Yeah. The trial ended in a conviction on January 11th after five and a half hours of deliberation. Wow. In April of the same year, Sharon Kinney was formally sentenced to life in prison, where she began to serve her sentence in the Missouri Reformatory for Women. However, later interviews with the jury from the trial revealed revealed that three ballots had been taken before the guilty verdict was reached. One jury told the Kansas City Star that Sharon's morals had not been considered by the jury and that she had and that she thought no juror had been aware that she had been tried previously for Patricia Jones's Mm -hmm. case. So she was like, that didn't matter. Yeah. But there were ballots taken away. Like, we didn't know all of that. So we just had the information that we had. Yeah. And so it was a lot harder to reach a verdict. James's family continued to believe the best of their daughter-in-law, telling reporters on the day of the verdict that we can't find it in our our hearts to say anything bad about her we still don't feel that she committed murder so they didn't believe it oh wow they really thought it was an accident yeah yeah the next week sharon's lawyer requested that she be released on bond even though she was convicted of a murder so the motion was denied Mm -hmm. because first degree murder is not available yeah no they eventually then go to judge Stubbs in april of 1962 saying that her case should be overturned oh no yeah because she should get a new one basically he denies it but eventually the missouri uh, supreme court reverses the conviction Mm. and orders a new trial for her so they're not saying she's innocent they're just saying she needs a new trial in may of 1963 she is released on twenty five thousand dollars bond oh she moves in with her mother with Mm -hmm. her children 
awaiting a new trial. So the second trial begins in March 23rd of 1964, and a jury selection, it takes 14 hours for them to select a jury. But eventually, they all get sequestered, and all this stuff happens, and what do they, I, I like, oh, it's a, okay, a mistrial was declared. Oh, okay. That's what mm-hmm. I was looking for. I, yeah. like, didn't write the word mistrial. So a mistrial is declared after one of the people who worked for the prosecution had once retained one of the juries. Oh. So they overturned the, the trial. Yeah, the jury. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they, so the third trial happens, okay. 1964. It, it's originally scheduled for June, but is pushed back. Uh-huh. The testimony in this trial remained contradictory because Boldiz testifies again, but he brings up the joke again. I don't yeah. know why they'd re-bring him, but whatever. <laughs> this time, a new witness, a female acquaintance of Sharon's, testified that she had once joked the woman should get rid of her husband the way Sharon did her old man. But the defense cross-examines her and she is seen as like a faulty witness they call mm-hmm. her so I don't know but it doesn't give any detail why. Yeah. The all-male jury deadlocks 7 to 5 in favor of acquittal in the trial resulting in a second mistrial. Hmm. A fourth trial the second Oh my god. <laughs> scheduled for October 1964. However, in September, Sharon Keene, who's still on bail, travels to Mexico with an alleged <gasps> lover, Francis Samuel Puglisi, leaving her children with James's father. Uh-huh. And she travels as his wife, so she just tells people she's yeah. his wife. Um, the couple later said that they went to Mexico to get married because it was legal oh, down there for them uh-huh. to get married. So after co- uh, crossing the border, the couple registered at a local hotel called Hotel Gin as husband and wife. And Sharon, saying that she felt unsafe in a foreign country, bought a pistol. On the night of September 18th, 1964, Sharon left the hotel without her quote-unquote husband. Mm-hmm. And they think she was either trying to acquire money because they were running low or possibly to get medicine she required. But they don't say what the medicine was for. Yeah. And she encounters a man named Francisco Parades Ordoniz, a Mexican-born American citizen. Um, They meet at a bar. And she accompanies him back to his room at Hotel La Vida. Ooh. So according to Sharon, she went with him to see photographs that he offered to show her. Weird, but okay. And then made sexual advances towards her. And she was forced to fire her gun at him in an attempt to protect herself. Sharon maintains later that she had no intention of harming or killing him, and she just wanted to frighten him. But Mm -hmm. her bullets strike him in the chest, and he's killed instantly. (gasps) Oh, my god! Which, I'm sorry, shoot into the air if you want to scare someone. So, responding to the sound of gunfire, um, an employee walks in. Calls the police. Lo- mm-hmm. He locks the play. Locks her into the room and calls the police, which I love. That's good thinking. Yeah, and yeah. the police do not believe Sharon's story. Mm-hmm. And investigations led, obviously, and Puglisi is cleared of all charges mm-hmm. because he was. He wasn't it was proven there. that he was at the other hotel and that he didn't really know about it. And she is convicted and charged with attempted robbery and a murder conviction. The murder is. It's. It's not. I don't know why I didn't write it down. Premeditated. Yeah, so she's only sentenced to 10 to 13 years, basically. Uh-huh. Or she's sentenced to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Then she tries to overturn the conviction, and the, the court's like, actually, your first conviction was too lenient, so oh, she was sentenced shit. to 13 years. Backfired so she gets, on yeah. her. In prison, Sharon was given the nickname La Pistolera. Do you know what that means? Pistoler? It means the gunfighter. <laughs> Obviously, Sharon then fails to appear in court for the murder of her husband. Yeah. And a warrant is issued for her arrest in 1964. Basically, so, like, they knew she was in prison at that time, but issuing the warrant means that immediately once she gets out of prison there, she'll be expedited. To, yeah, yeah, back. On December 7th, 1969, Sharon Kinney wasn't present for the routine 5 p.m. roll call. 
but her absence wasn't officially noted until she failed to show up a second time. So they check her room in the infirmary thinking she was sick. Mm-hmm. However, La Pistolera was gone. <gasps> the news of her escape was not reported to the police until 2 a.m. the following morning. Uh-oh. A manhunt was then arranged, focusing on Mexican northern states, believing that Sharon might have tried to go home mm-hmm. or gone to, like, a, you know... Um, northern Mexican yeah. state. She did know Spanish. She was fluent okay. in Spanish. So uh-huh. they were like, she could really get along anywhere. Uh-huh. And it was this weird thing where like the FBI was like, it's not our case because she escaped in Mexico. Yeah. And Mexico was like, the FBI should take over because we think she's going to try to return to the Run. States. And yeah. the FBI was like, no, she probably went to Venezuela. So then the Mexican police were like, well, let's let them take care yeah, of Yeah, because it's not our problem. And then, yeah. yeah. In December of 1969, Basically, the authorities run out of leads to mm-hmm. pursue. In a segment on Investigation Discovery's series, Deadly Women, author James Hayes speculates that Sharon Kinney committed her first murder for money and then began to like it. Mm-hmm. And former FBI profiler Candace DeLong supports that assertion, stating that Sharon is a sociopath, lacking in remorse or empathy, and therefore has no compunction about killing to get what she wants. I love Candace DeLong. So in I'm Just an Ordinary Girl, the Sharon Kinney story, Hayes asserts that Sharon was inspired to kill her husband by a magazine article she read about Lillian Chaston, a Virginia woman who shot her husband during an argument and blamed the gunshot on the two-year-old daughter. Uh Charges against Chaston were filed in February of 1960, weeks before James's death. More than 40 years after her escape, Sharon Kinney's remains at large. Her bond is still outstanding making it the oldest outstanding murder warrant known to exist in Missouri and one of the oldest in America. Her whereabouts and ultimate fate are still unknown. Oh, wow. So she's still out she's there still running out there. around. A lot of people think maybe James's family, or not James's family, the man she killed in Mexico's family mm-hmm. helped her escape so that they could kill her because he was tied to like some cartel the, yeah. um, mm-hmm. business. And then some people think she might have drowned trying to escape uh-huh. like because there was water near, like trying mm-hmm. to get somewhere else or that she escaped freely and lived her life. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, under a different name yeah, and identity. Because she can speak Spanish. Spanish, so it's not like she's like, oh, you know, yeah. it's not like someone would be like, oh, well, there was some girl here who some only spoke English. Girl, yeah. yeah, she just was like passive, you know. Mm-hmm. So they think wow. a lot of people think she just ran off. Yeah, Never and is still out there yep. somewhere. I mean, she'd be old, but she she's old by yeah. now. But but she she could still be at the time of her escape. She was in her thirties. So yeah, she still lived her whole she life. Started basically. young. Yeah. yeah, that's insane. How crazy, right? Yeah, it was so long. Sorry, but no, that's good. I mean, both of ours were long, yeah. but um. Yeah, that I had never heard of her right? before. Me neither. Yeah. And then I was just like, let me look at Deadly Women. Yeah. That's a nuts story. Yeah. Just from it's start to crazy. finish. Yeah. <laughs> Three murders that we know of. Yes. Wow. So she's a serial killer, technically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was never convicted of all of them, though. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. That two-year-old daughter might still think yeah. she murdered her own father, which I sucks. I mean, it's crazy because she could fire a gun. So it's like, yeah, that's it also is weird. plausible that that happened. Yeah. But it just seems a little too convenient. Yeah. It doesn't seem yeah. probable. Well, we are Helen High Horror. We are. Um, we're Helen High Horror on everything. On Twitter, we're Hell High Horror. Mm-hmm. I'm Austin Castelli. I'm Austin Castelli on everything. I'm Reparata uh, Hattersley. Ooh, it's weird to say my whole name. I'm Reparata Ann on everything. Yes, on all the social medias. And we are going to be at PodX. Yes. um, The 
the weekend after this comes yes, out. The Friday and the Sunday we have oh, no, planned. Oh no, actually not. Um, in Weeks. a week and a half after this comes oh, out. A week and a half, yeah, that's true. Yes. The last week in May. Yes. Weekend in May. Last weekend in May and then the second day of June will yes. be at Podex and um, it's in Nashville at Music City Center. Boop, boop. Use it's got code. Grass on its roof. Yes. Use code horror to get 10% off your tickets. There's going to be a lot of great events there. There's now a Podex app that you can yep. download to like put your schedule together, get all organized, all that jazz. Yeah. We're accepting spooky stories mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. HelenHighHorror at gmail.com. And I recently kind of organized our Patreon. So basically, our $1 patrons are going to get our two wild card stories every month. Our $5 patrons are going to get the wild card stories. They're going to get a postcard and they're going to get ad-free episodes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and there's a RSS feed dedicated just to cool. that. So you can actually plug that into your podcast listening mm-hmm. app so it just downloads like usual and then our ten dollar patrons are going to get all of the above and also uh some merch in the mail coop, so coop, coop. yeah yeah um so uh check that out if you're interested and i think that's it right yeah i think that's it okay happy hauntings happy everyone hauntings. bye, bye.